0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome to our study through the Book of Acts. We're calling it We Are All Witnesses, Part 2. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the Book of Acts, and get ready to study God's Word with us. It is great to see you. God bless you guys here in Elgin. It's awesome. Um, Also want to say hi to all of you who are joining us via the web. And uh, we just thank God that we're all gathered together and we get to worship God through song and through giving and now by hearing from him in his word. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 verses 26 to 40 is where we're going to be today, uh, I came to faith in Christ in uh, two stages, in some ways. <laughs> I, when people ask me, When's, when, when did you really become a Christian, I, I tell them that it was kind of early in high school, because that was when I was serious a- about it. But my actual moment where I, I prayed to receive Christ, where I heard the gospel message and I responded was several years earlier. Um, I grew up in a in a nominal Christian home. I've said that before to you. A nominal Christian means that we were part of a Presbyterian church, the Presbyterian Church USA. It's not because we were Presbyterian. It was just the one that was nearby. Um, I don't remember hearing the gospel proclaimed in that church. I don't know if it was. Maybe it was. I just wasn't listening. Um, but like most PCUSA churches, it, was, it tended to be focused on, you know, Jesus is a good guy, and you should be just like him, and so good luck trying. I found church to be really horrible, to be honest. It reminded me of itchy sweaters and really watered-down juice. Uh, I, 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 I loved the cookies after the service, but I just wanted to leave so I could go home and watch the Seahawks lose. Um, I remember, though, that my sister, my older sister, uh, she got involved with a a group of people who were from a different kind of church. It was more kind of an evangelical church. There was a difference that happened in her life, and uh, she started to attend this youth ministry, and um, one thing led to another, and she ended up working at a camp. In fact, the way she got at the camp was that there was some animal nearby the camp, and she felt really bad for the animal. And so she picked the animal up because it was injured or something. She took it to the main office of this Christian camp and said, I found this animal. And then they started talking to her about becoming a counselor, (laughs) which was funny. Um, But she said, yeah, that would be fantastic because she was kind of new to the faith. and So she got involved in this camp. Um, Meanwhile, I, I was Uh, heavily influenced by our neighbors just just down the street was this very vibrant christian family the stampers who were some of the dearest people that i knew they took me to their church from time to time which was way better than than my church um they would invite me to come with them frequently and so I, i started to change my mind a little bit about church and i realized that maybe it was just my just my church eventually my mom uh was thinking maybe it would be a good idea for my son to go to this Christian camp that my, that my sister was a counselor at. And so I did. She just wanted to get rid of me and my other sister for a week. So she pushed us to the camp. And I remember it was during that, during that week when I was in, I don't know, fifth, sixth grade. It was during that week that I had really heard the gospel for the first time I remember the end of the week, they, you know, they have that Friday night, next day your parents are going to pick you up, and it's a quiet evening and stuff, and we, we had a place called The Forum, it was inside, and I remember the shag green carpet and the tiered seats, and I was sitting in those seats, and uh, the guy in the front who I'd never heard before, he, he doesn't know who I am. He had no idea what was happening that particular day. He was just presenting the gospel. He told the story about Jesus and what he did, died on the cross, rose from the dead. He described actually what happened when Jesus died on the cross and how that process took place. And I remember just being overwhelmed with sadness about what had happened to Jesus, but also this massive grief about the fact that I I just knew that I put him there. I just knew that the sin that he was paying for was something that I was was guilty of. I don't know, man, it was just like God had opened the eyes of my heart and I, I knew that whatever it was that this guy was talking about was something that I needed, I needed it. So at the end, when he invited people to pray to receive Christ, he said, you know, of course, with all the eyes closed and heads bowed, which nobody did, you know, all the kids are like looking through their fingers, but I wanna know, you know, is there anybody here who wants to receive Christ? My hand shot right up. My friend, who was next to me, grabbed my arm and said, "Stop it!" And he started pulling my arm down, but I didn't want to stop it. I wanted to. I wanted to trust. I wanted to trust Jesus. I've looked back on a lot of that, um, and from my point of view, you know, at the moment, it, it felt very much like this was just something that was just happening. You know, it's kind of a coincidence that my sister was working in this camp, and a coincidence that these people lived down the street from me, and all the. But as I've gotten older and more seasoned in the faith, the more I've realized that the Holy Spirit's work in my life began way before I ever got to this shag green carpet room with a guy talking to me. I mean, the number of things that had to happen in order for me to be in that place, to hear that message on that day, in order for me to have an open heart for it, it was, it was dripping. My, my conversion was dripping with the work of the Spirit. So's yours. If you think back to yours, I mean, I'm sure that those of you who are Christians could think about it and think, man, isn't it weird that all of these things just lined up exactly this, this way? We all have our stories. We all have our stories about how it is that we came to faith in Christ. And if you haven't yet come to faith in Christ, you will. And when you do, you, when you do, you'll have a story about probably this day and other things that happened. The Spirit of God was moving in your life and around you in ways that you never saw. This passage that we're going to be looking at is a conversion story. It's a story about, (laughs) it's actually a story about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit moves really clearly in the life of a guy named Philip to move him to a place where he can preach the gospel to a man who is from far, far away. And just like every conversion story, it's exciting at the end of it. You're kind of left with this like motivation and joy and the gospel and what happens. But what I want to do in the next few minutes is I want to tell you this story. And then I want to give you four reflections or four uh, expectations that you and I ought to have about the Holy Spirit when we engage in mission. Missions. You, like when we go out into the world and we share the gospel, what is going on with the Holy Spirit in the world? Can we expect the Holy Spirit to have done or be doing when we engage in God's mission? How is he preparing the way? How is he turning hearts? What is he doing in all of those, all of those ways? So look, uh, Acts eight twenty six to 40. Let me tell the story first. Here's what it sounds like. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Uh, Little get you up to speed about what's happening here. Philip was one of those guys who in Acts six started uh, serving the tables of the widows because the apostles didn't want to do, to do it. If you remember when we studied that, he, he was one of the, he's a servant of the Lord. He's full of the spirit and of faith. His buddy, Stephen, who also served tables, ended up preaching a big sermon that got Stephen killed. That sermon ended up lighting up a, uh, lighting up a massive persecution that took place in Jerusalem. And so that persecution scattered all the other disciples all over the place. Philip ends up going to Samaria. Samaria, as I said in previous sermons, was not a place that Jewish people spent much time because they viewed the Samaritan people as really, really rotten and horrible. There was a racist thing going on there, cultural thing going on there, but Philip, he scattered to Samaria, just north of where he was, And when he gets there, he starts to proclaim the gospel to these people. And lo and behold, he finds that they start responding in faith. Guys, not just responding in faith. Like demons are being cast out. People are getting healed. People who've been sick for years and years are getting healed. Moms and dads are crying in joy because of their child who was sick for so long. And now they're well I mean, as a pastor, these are the moments that you wait for, right? I mean, ministry's hard. You slog through it. And then there are these moments where we say, God showed up. Look, we know God's always been there. But you know what I mean? Like palpably, he's there and God's come upon them and the spirit is there. And yes, and that's what Philip is experiencing right, right now. Right now. And then while he's rejoicing, saying, oh, I want to stay here and enjoy the scene. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, okay, uh, it's time to go. I need you to go toward this south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. See, Philip, it's a desert place. Wait a minute. You want me to go for the moment of the greatest fruitfulness in ministry that I've ever had? To a road where nobody travels in a desert without any explanation of what's going to happen there. And the Lord's like, yes, that's exactly what I want you to do. All right. Uh, if, If this were me right here, I would be like, why, when, how, but that's not what you get you just yeah he, he, he rose and went now there was an Ethiopian he travels quite a ways to get to this road I mean he's in Samaria which is north and he travels from Samaria all the way back to where it was that he scattered from Jerusalem goes through the place where all the persecution is happening that he ran away from gets on the desert road, and he starts driving. Guys, we're, I'm talking about, like, the middle of Indiana here. There's nobody there. And he he's in the middle of this road. And honestly, I, he's just like, I don't... Okay, I guess I'll just keep walking. But there's an Ethiopian. Uh, this is important. Ethiopia was the Timbuktu of those days. You know how we say that? Uh... Uh, you know, son, I've driven you from here to Timbuktu. What do, we, what do we mean by that? From here to the ends of the earth. Well, that's the way Ethiopia was phrased. It was the edge of the known world, basically. In fact, I, I have a little map here. It, this is where he, he's actually up here. Oops, in the very top here. And then Jerusalem's here, Gaza's here this is how you get to Ethiopia and then there's Ethiopia down there it's a long way away it's about two to three week uh, trip and it was the I mean it was the edge of everything that's known about about anywhere when I lived in New Zealand people used to say that it's not the edge of the world but uh, we can see it from there yeah it's just so far so far away it's Timbuktu and so When he meets an Ethiopian, there was sort of among uh, Roman people this belief that Ethiopians were kind of the most exotic people around. You know, they had the dark black skin and they, from this far off land, and the people who could afford to come to the Roman world from Ethiopia were usually really wealthy and so well. So they were like, ooh, this magic place down called Ethiopia, where when people come from it, they're dressed in this magic Garb And wow, Ethiopia, that's who he meets. A guy like that. Not just any guy, though. He was a eunuch. I'll talk about that in a second. A court official of of Candace. Now, Candace is not the name of uh, Phineas and Ferb's sister. Candace is the name of uh, the queen. And by name, I mean, you know how we say Caesar Augustus? Caesar Tiberius, Caesar, it's the title. Candace is the title of the queen. President Biden, President Trump, President Bush, President Clinton, it's the title. So he was a court official of the Candace, of, of the queen. She was the queen of the Ethiopians, and, and he was in charge of all her treasure. He's the finance minister, which um, probably means he's got a little bit of dash. He's got a little bit of money. We know that too, of course, because he's seated in his chariot. Now, not everybody had a chariot. And not everybody is seated in a chariot reading a scroll and uh, you know, somebody else driving them. He's a very important man. He's a very important man. He's traveled for two, two, three weeks to get to this location. He's actually gone to Jerusalem. He comes to Jerusalem, and, and he came there to worship, and he was returning this is probably an important thing. I mean, the guy has traveled, like I said, two to three weeks, spent all of his own money to get up to Jerusalem and he's worshiping. He's probably not a Jew, but what he is is, is a worshiper of God, Yahweh. So really committed. You 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 didn't get you didn't go two to three weeks to get here today. I, I promise you that. You would have been like, What why would I? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But he did. He traveled that far to go and to worship there, but his experience with worship was different than most others. And the reason for that is because he was, he was a eunuch. Well, a, a eunuch is somebody who has been castrated. Uh, if, you, if you served a female... Uh, higher up, if you, if, you, if you served a queen or a princess or you were involved in any kind of service to a woman in the kingdom who, uh, whose dad or brother or whoever else didn't want any sexual relations with, your job was to get castrated. You had to be a eunuch. And so he's serving with uh, the queen. And so kind of a rule that you have to get castrated so there's no hanky-panky going on there. The downside to that is that if you're a worshiper of Yahweh and you're castrated, if you're a eunuch, it means that you can can go to the temple, but you cannot join in the assembly of the people there. You are, Deuteronomy 23, 1, you are separated from full inclusion into the community of faith. The law says you're broken, unclean, so you need to stay at a distance. So this guy's traveled all the way up two to three weeks, gone to the temple, been reminded in this moment of his distance from the one true God. He wants to worship the one true God, but he can't be included completely into that community. While he's there, he buys a a, 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 a scroll of Isaiah. He's returning home, he's reading Isaiah, and that's important, guys. Because um, Isaiah is the one book in the Bible that provides hope for a eunuch. You're not allowed to be in the community of faith, but Isaiah foretold a time when actually the eunuch would receive joy. Here's what it says in Isaiah 56, verse three. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. You can't have sons and daughters. That's the problem with being a eunuch. Your name will not last beyond your generation. It dies with you in a society where family was everything and one's name and and standing before God and in the land in perpetuity was so, so important. The eunuch was like the worst person, the worst situation you could be in. But there's a time, he says, coming when When you'll have a better name than sons and daughters, better name than what it is that your kids could give you in the days ahead. I will give them, I will give the eunuchs, an everlasting name that shall not be, don't you love the Bible, cut off. So here's this guy, he's been reading Isaiah. And he he knows this this promise is there so i probably bought the scroll of isaiah when will this come i've been reminded again that i can't go fully into the into the promise that's to come but when 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 will it happen well philip's there on the road he sees this ethiopian and the spirit said to him i don't know how the spirit said it to him i have no idea I don't know if it was an impression that he had, or he actually verbally heard from the spirit earlier. An angel showed up. We doesn't say that here, but I don't know. Maybe the angels were with him and says, "Hey, go over there." But the spirit said to him, "Go over and join this chariot, which is moving, guys. It's moving at some speed, right?" So Philip, get on your horse, son. Start running. <laughs> okay. So Philip, he ran to him and and just when he gets there just when he's coming up alongside he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and he asked him do you <coughs> this would be me I'm sorry maybe he was in great shape I don't know do do you understand what you're reading and he said well how can I unless someone Guides me, look, it's not like he can't understand the words on the page. It's not like he can't understand what's being said in in the prophet Isaiah. What his problem is, he's trying to figure out who the passage is about. This passage that he's reading, who's it about? He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The passage of scripture that he was reading was this one, Isaiah 53. Like a sheep, he, who's he? he? was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Who, who, Who is his? Who is he? The eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Listen, if this guy's gonna come and he's gonna bring the joy that is promised in Isaiah 56 about the eunuch coming, I wanna know who it is. Now, I'm gonna read this passage to you. It's from Isaiah 53, so you've been a Christian for a long time. And so you'll be like, I know who it's about. Just, if you've not been a Christian for a long time, I just want you to listen to the language of the passage and in your mind be thinking to yourself the very question that this guy's thinking. Who does this describe? This is in the Old Testament. Lots and lots and lots of years before Philip shows up. Who is described in this passage? He had no form or majesty that we should look at him Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Do you know in your Sunday school, they say, who's that about? The little kid goes, Jesus, that's right. That's right, yes, who's it about? That's about Jesus. In fact, the whole New Testament starts describing this very thing. Most of the gospel writers have in their minds Isaiah 53. And they use the same language to say, don't you see when he's on the cross, he's borne our griefs, he's pierced for our transgressions, all of this stuff. And so Philip's sitting there in the chariot, and this is such a softball. Who's this about, says the guy. (laughs) Well, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Beginning with this scripture, have you ever watched a a movie, uh, maybe with your spouse? So you watch the movie before your spouse or friend. You love the movie, right? Sixth Sense or Ocean's Eleven or just pick. My wife and I watched one last night that had a twist in the end. And we were like, oh, my gosh. Never. We didn't see that coming. But then you watch it a second time, okay? And maybe you watch it a second time with somebody who didn't see it the first time. I've done this before. Jeannie, you've got to come and see this movie. Okay, I will. I will. So we sit down, we start watching it. And of course, she's the same, she, she does this. Um, so who's this about? Why is that happening? Why is he wearing the color red? I don't, honey, I don't know. I don't, I don't know, but you gotta watch the movie. But why is he saying that? I don't understand this. Does this end happy? <laughs> I don't wanna watch it if it's not happy in the end. Well, I don't know if it's happy in the end. Well, you need to tell me what's gonna happen. You need to watch the movie. But while I'm watching, I'm smirking. Why are you smirking? Why did you smirk at that scene right there? That was not a smirking scene. But I'm smirking because I, okay, the reveal at the end has given me a knowledge that when I watch it the second time through, I'm like, <gasps> they give it away there, and they give it away there, and they give it away there, and they give it away there. And But she's like, give away what? I don't even know what's happening. And then, of course, at the end, she's got, that's the big reveal. This is basically what the New Testament writers did with the Old Testament. They're like, okay, so this whole Old Testament is telling the story about Israel and its promised Messiah and what's going to happen. And everyone expects him to come. They don't expect him to die on a cross. And ultimately, they don't expect him to be God himself. But that's the big reveal in the New Testament. And so these guys now are going back and rereading the entirety of the Old Testament and saying, look, he's there. And he's there. And he's there. And he's like, gave it away. Here, 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 here. That's what Philip's doing. Hey, let me show you some really cool stuff. And he goes back and he starts showing him in Isaiah and all the other passages that this is exactly what, what happened. Tim Keller has this wonderful, wonderful summary of what this looks like and he wrote about it it's a bit it's a bit long but i think you'll enjoy it he said jesus is the true and better adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us jesus is the true and better abel who though innocently slain has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation but for acquittal jesus is the true and better abraham who answered the call of god to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing whither he went To create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you didn't withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up on the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us. Because you didn't withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. He's he's the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. See, the Bible's not really about you, it's about him. And that's where Philip ends. And when he does end, when he does end, here's what happens. As they were going along the road, they came to some water on the desert road. There just happens to be water here when he finishes this thing. Oh my goodness, what a coincidence. And the eunuch said, hey, here's water. What? Look at that word. What prevents me from being baptized? This guy's whole life has been being prevented from full inclusion into God's family. And so he asked, and then I don't know how he asked it, hey, is there anything that's gonna actually prevent me? Because this sounds too good to be true and I don't wanna get to the edge of this thing and then actually have you push back because that's all I've ever experienced. Can I, a eunuch, be part of this? What prevents me from being baptized? He stopped the chariot. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and they baptized him. No, there's nothing stopping you. there's nothing preventing it. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. okay, I don't know, man, like I don't know, like okay may. It's possible that this is just a summary of saying, yeah, the spirit just sort of, you know, he comes out of the water and Philip's like, oh, it's time to go. I got to go. So he climbs up, dries himself off, starts walking back on the desert road. There are some people who are like, clearly that's the only way this could happen. But the problem is the language of being carried away is very similar to the language about Elijah in the Old Testament, who when, when was carried away was like, here, now There. Transmogrified! Boom, boom. It's not a word. I know. Calvin and Hobbes. (laughs) The eunuch saw him no more. He just came up. Oh, where's the guy baptizing me? Oh well. He went on his way rejoicing, but Philip found himself in Azotus. Philip's like came up out of the water. Whoa! I'm in Azotus. He passed through and he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. it's a conversion story. What a conversion story. What a conversion story. So, look, let me give you four kind of applications, four expectations that you and I can have from what do we learn about the mission of God and the Holy Spirit's work and all of these things? Something that we can you know, take home with us, and understand how God's working in the world. Number one, uh, you're going to need to expect to go before you know. I will say that generally about your Christian life, that you're going to have to expect to go before you know. But specifically when it comes to the mission of God, I'm just going to tell you that he's not going to lay out all the deeds. It might actually look like the Lord is calling you to something that makes no sense. Isn't that what Philip's doing? He's having a great time with the Samaritans. Everything's going really well. And the Spirit of the Lord comes up and an angel says, hey, I need you to go to the desert road. And like I said, if it were me, I'd be like, why? Do you know there's no one on the desert road, right? That's why it's called desert road. Where will I stay? How long will I be there? What am I looking for? He gets none of that. He just gets, go to the desert road. I went on a mission trip years ago, led a mission trip to Fiji with some, different folks. And there's some people who go on a mission trip and the first thing that they they're like, "Man, I'm just into this, really excited. We're just going to go and whatever happens is great and the Lord is going to take care of us and all of that stuff." And then there's And then there's the others. You know, the ones who you don't want on your trip because all they do is stand by you the whole time and are like, "So what time is lunch?" And when are we going to be doing this? Can you give us the shape of the day? In fact, like four weeks beforehand, can you give us the shape of the trip? What are we doing on Tuesday afternoon at three? Because I was thinking about maybe FaceTiming my friend. Like, I don't know. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Have you not planned this down to the very last detail? No, I haven't. Well, that's not very responsible, isn't it? Here's the thing. I don't believe that the Lord gives us a whole lot more than the next thing. When we're engaged in God's mission, we are on a need-to-know basis. The next step is gonna be laid out before us, but usually not the one after that. We usually have to go before we know. And you know this, listen, if you if engage you, if you enlist in the military today and you show up and you're like, I have my little checklist here. Where will I be sleeping and how much food will I get each day in our hash browns served tomorrow? Because I love hash brown. If you do all this stuff and the, the, your commanding officer says, okay, it's time for us to go and run up that hill. I don't know if I believe in running like you do. I think that it hurts sometimes and I have a pain in my leg and I just don't know. I think it would be much better for me to stay here so I can watch over the camera. This is not how you, how you soldier. This is not how you soldier. When you enlist in the military, you give up your right to ask the question about where we're going and when we're going and how we're going. When you enlist with the Lord Jesus Christ, you give up your right to tell him where, when, how. When he says jump, you say, how high. How high. Helen Rosevere, a missionary in the Congo for years and years and years. So dirt roads in the Congo, she said, the only way that you could drive at night along these dirt roads is they put these cat's eyes on sticks, you know. And she said, it's really interesting, when you're driving back for, you know, a couple hours in the middle of the night, the way that you get back to your place is that you have to look at the cat's eye, and you drive directly at the cat's eye. And then they have another cat's eye, as soon as you're like, a second before you hit this cat's eye. Oh, there's the other one. Woo! And then before you get to that one, woo! And before you get to that one, woo! You you go from cat's eye to cat's eye to cat's eye. When she talks about this, she said, you know, my experience in ministry and in life has basically been this. That the Lord will give me the next thing. The thing in front of me right now. And then before I get to the culmination of it... Right at the right time, in just the right moment, he will reveal the next one. And that life with Jesus is basically an activity of trusting for the revelation of the next cat's eye and a willingness to go before I know. So many of us are so frustrated because we're expecting from God more information that he is willing and wants to give you. Just do the thing in front of you. He'll let you know when the next thing is to come. Expect to know before you go. Second, expect the Spirit to get there early. Like the Holy Spirit is working in all of these places before you get there. Look, this whole passage is dripping with the Spirit of God. You saw it as we went through. I will summarize again in case you fell asleep. Uh, The angel says to go to the desert road. Uh, An Ethiopian eunuch is on the road returning from Jerusalem where he's just been reminded of his limited position before God. The Holy Spirit prompts Philip to go to the chariot And when he gets to the edge of the chariot, the Ethiopian just happens to own an Isaiah scroll that he purchased, and he's reading it right at the right time so that Philip can ask the question, hey, do you know what you're reading? And the guy can say, I don't know, I need someone to help me. Well, I just happened to be here in the middle of a desert road. Come on up, buddy he sits down and he starts asking, I wanna know who this guy is. And Philip, who's just done preaching up there and doing the very same thing, explaining who Jesus is from the views of the Old Testament to all of these Samaritans and Jews. is like, oh, I can do that. I've had a lot of practice. And so all of a sudden he starts saying this. And then all of a sudden there's a, there's a water source in the midst of the desert road and they go down and the spirit's like, okay, we're done. he takes him off there. Oh, come on, the spirit's everywhere. Did Philip convert this man? No. Who converted him? Well, the Spirit, the spirit did. You, you do see how all of this, this guy's trip two to three weeks beforehand had to be planned and, and done before Philip ever even thought about doing any of this. The Spirit of God is always working before you and I arrive at any location at all. When we go to a location, a new job or new whatever, you do know that when the Lord plops you down in that place, the people around you, the people around me have already had experiences with the Spirit of God that you know nothing, you know nothing about. What the Spirit wants you to do is say, okay, open your mouth. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when he's in Corinth, this is a great, great passage. When he's in Corinth in Acts 16, this is what happens. Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, and Paul was occupied with the word. He was testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he is being reviled and opposed. Lots of pushback from the the Jewish community shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood's on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, who was a worshiper of God, just like the Ethiopian. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, must have gone with Paul over there and he believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. But Paul's still facing all sorts of pushback from this Jewish community. And so he's thinking to himself, like in so many other places, I've done my work here, I've gathered this group of people, They're they're going to start their own little church. He's done this in so many other cities. But in this passage, there's this added on. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, don't be afraid, but go on speaking, don't be silent for I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. He stayed there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Did he have a bunch of people who were his? I mean, what we counted them? There's Crispus, there's Titius Justice, a bunch of other people, their families, a few other people. Who, is that who he's talking about? No. The Lord is coming to him and saying, hey, Paul, I've been going ahead of you and I've prepared the hearts of all these other people out here. I need you to preach here for a while because there's lots of fruit coming in because I'm doing the work. I just need you to open, I just need you to open your mouth. Isn't this essentially what God said to Moses when he get, you know, Moses, hey, I need you to go and tell a Pharaoh off. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't talk so good. Just say something. That's all I need you to do, man. Is all I need you to do. I've done all the work. I've prepared every last part of it. Just, 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 just speak. Holy Spirit's going to get there early. He always does. And because he gets there early, third one, you can start where people are, not where you think they ought to be. You need to believe that when you're interacting with your friend or your neighbor, the person you're talking to, is at the place they're at right now because that's where the Lord has them. This guy named Mark Middleberg, a number of years ago, he was playing around with the bridge illustration. Some of you will know this. Man, woman, and God. And the idea is that the man is on this side and he needs to get over here and God is over here. So how does he do it? He does it by the cross of Jesus Christ and he bridges the gap so the man can be welcomed into heaven with God. It's a great way to present the gospel to people. Very simple, very easy, straightforward. The problem Mark Middleburg pointed out, he says all of this assumes that this guy is standing on the edge, waiting, just wanting desperately to be over with God. Do you know a lot of people like that? I don't. You know what I know a lot of? I know a lot of people who are over here who don't even know there's a cliff over here or a cross or a god, they have a barrier in their mind saying, Don't Christians hate homosexuals? Don't they all vote Republican? Another barrier. Don't they all? Don't they? What, how do you deal with suffering and loss in this world? God is good. Why is there a hell? And what about science and all that stuff? Barrier, 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 barrier. You got to get all through that before the person gets to here. What I'm telling you is that when you engage with your friend and they're here, don't be frustrated they're not here yet. That's your job. That's why you're there. So start where they are. Not where you think they ought to be. But that's going to take a lot of time. Yeah. And a lot of friendship. Yeah. A lot of perseverance. Yes. Finally. Finally the fourth one you know the beauty of having the holy spirit involved in all this like it is is that you need to expect that any activity that is engaged in the mission of god is going to bear fruit it will bear fruit so when 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 in this passage the eunuch ends up believing and is baptized this is a conversion story and luke writes it down so that you and i can see that the gospel is the power of god unto salvation it is the power of God unto salvation, that God, when he gives his word to people, when it goes forth from his mouth, it always accomplishes what he wants it to. Isaiah 55, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. The rain always accomplishes it. The snow always accomplishes what it's sent for. So shall my word, like rain, like snow, it's sent forth from heaven that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Always, always. When you open your mouth, when I open my mouth and I stand every single week, I have the promise from God that when I stand up before the people of God or anybody else, if I am preaching the word of God, it will bear fruit. I sometimes think you and I shy away from the mission of God because we think, but will it work? It always works. Well, why doesn't everyone come to faith in Jesus? That's his business. Success is not seeing them all come. Success is proclamation. Success is following. Success is, hey, I need you to go to the desert road. Okay. Success is simple obedience to the next cat's eye. That's, that's what it is. He's not asking you to save the world. He's asking you to be faithful where you Look, at the end of all of this, I just, I, I, let me just say this. <laughs> I, drive a, I ride a scooter, uh, not one of these ones, me, 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 I ride a scooter like a stand-up one. It goes very, very fast, like 60 miles an hour. Don't tell anyone. And you'll see me. I have an orange helmet, and I look like an idiot, right, <laughs> standing up in the scooter. You're like, is he, how old is he? 50, you know? My scooter's interesting, though, because it it has uh, engines in both—it power in both wheels. Uh, So if you've ridden those little scooters around the little, you know, the cities and stuff, the bird scooters or whatever, you're like, this is fun, and it's like 10 miles an hour. Okay, take that and multiply it by like 10. And the acceleration of my scooter is really, really scary. So when you push down the thumb accelerator, if you're not—you don't have your foot on the back. They've even put a little stand on the back so you can lean forward, push back on the back. If you don't do this and you hit the thumb accelerator, the thing will scoot out from under you. It'll just go. i often see what I did there, scoot. Anyway, but it goes out from under you. So whenever somebody wants to ride my scooter, I'm like, this is great. we'll have a lot of fun. Um, here's the thing. You need to commit to this. You have to get on, put your foot on, put your foot on the back and hit that accelerator because the moment you do, it will just go, foo! And it'll take off underneath you. Commit to it. The power's there. I promise you, the power's there. It's greater than what you could even imagine. But you got to commit to it. you got to get on there. And you got to commit to going. Well, I think about whenever I start my scooter and I do this, when it rolls through my head is that this is basically what God is asking you and I to do. The power of the Holy Spirit is so overwhelming. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It can overcome anything. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's just waiting. The Spirit is like, I just want you to hit the accelerator, man. Hold on. You do know that our church, the Lord wants us to hit the accelerator and commit ourselves wholly to the mission of God. Our individual lives, that's all he wants. He just, come on, commit yourself to live as Christ, to die as gain. Commit yourself wholeheartedly to what the Lord is doing in your life. Where have you placed me, Lord? It's going to be scary. Yeah, it's scary. It's fast. Jump on. Hit it, baby. And you just see what the Lord will do. You might even meet an Ethiopian. Or go to the ends of the earth. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm just thankful for your grace. And I'm thankful for this invitation, quite honestly, to engage in the mission of God in ways that uh, perhaps in the past we don't think about. Give us the motivation. This passage meant to motivate us, Lord. I pray that this would motivate us and move move us forward with the guarantee that success is there. Spirit, you are so much more than we give you credit for. You do so much more. Help us to get on board with you (laughs) and show us, Father, the result, the fruit of our commitment to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.